Welcome to the Obey Podcast, where we see through mainstream narrative. No propaganda, no bullshit, just the truth. And now, here's your host, Matthew Keck. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bay Podcast, and I appreciate that you're joining in on episode three. Today we're going to do something a little different. If you look back at episodes one and two, I took apart the news going into that day, and I kind of gave some insight there and what maybe you should be paying attention to and what you shouldn't be paying attention to. Today I'm going to do something that's uh, a little more of a almost a deep dive, um, although to some extent it will be surface level just because there's there's so much there. But what I'm going to start unpacking is the economic policy that Joe Biden is running on. So what, what I pulled is I pulled the Sanders-Biden Task Force Policy Recommendations from Joe Biden's website. And this is about a 115-page PDF that's split into five or six sections um, off the top of my head because uh, I just don't want to be ruffling through the papers now. They talk about economics, they talk about healthcare, they talk about education, they talk about the environment, they talk about criminal justice, um, and I think they talk about one other thing, but I, I'm not going to but bother to, to ruffle around for it now. Um, so what I want to do, though, is specifically look through this report on the economic side and kind of give some basic objections that would be really tough to reconcile with Joe Biden's plan, just so maybe if you're not familiar with certain specific situations, you can have an idea of what counterarguments to make if you run into a supporter of Joe Biden's policies. Well, one of the reasons I think it is so important to take apart the platform Joe Biden's running on is because a lot of times when libertarian-oriented people talk to liberals about economics, libertarians get uh, really caught up, caught up in the, the, the principles of it, right? So I could sit here and I could argue about why Biden's policies um, contradict the non-aggression principle and how he's making and cr- he's criminalizing a bunch of voluntary consensual contracts between two consenting adults, right? So I could argue that the minimum wage laws are bad because if you and I agree to labor at a price, it should be legitimate no matter what Joe Biden has to say about it. But he wants to criminalize everything below $15 an hour. So that's not something, those arguments aren't going to be the objections I'll raise in this episode, but I don't think they're invalid. Because much as I want to talk about private property rights and all that, a lot of leftists will just turn off the second you start talking about how you should be able to engage in these things, because I'll start talking about the trade-offs and the ends justifying the means. So at that point, you need to really level with them and explain how the policies that they are supporting actually hurt the people they're trying to help. And once you can frame it in that light, a lot of times they'll be more open to hearing your argument. And then maybe you can at least get it across them from that angle. And that's kind of how you can start to convert some people. Um, so the first one of the policy proposals that I'm going to talk about, I, I, I kind of split up. So so, so, so I, I guess to describe this document better, he spends about seven or eight pages waxing and waning about different policies. And it almost sounds like if you're going to take something academic and rewrite it in the form of a stump speech. So it's still more, you know, legitimate than a lot of things that they'll argue on the public stage. But it's still not detailed in technical ways. It's generally aspirational, but you can take away a lot of general trends from this. So the the first trend I kind of want to talk about, and I'm going to focus on this episode, 
is worker protections. So the, the first policy that I put in this worker protections category is the $15 minimum wage. So one of the issues with the $15 minimum wage, I addressed it before, you can talk about you know how it violates the non-aggression principle because you both agree on a set wage and now it's invalid. But there, there are a couple of consequentialist things to approach this. So you can easily imagine a fast food restaurant that makes a certain margin either per meal or just on average given the sales volume they get in a day, you look at the wages of all the workers they put in, the, that business makes a certain amount of money as a profit you know, so, so, so you take revenues minus costs and you get a certain profit level. And normally these are a lot of very small margin places. So if you're going to say, you know, double the hourly wage to $15 an hour in some places, or at least increase it by a few dollars an hour per every worker there, then you're going to have to start doing, you're going to affect the profit maximization equation of a small business. So I've heard the argument from leftists saying, well, McDonald's already staffs uh, as little as they can, because that's how you maximize profit. But that, it's not really that simple, right? It, you, you don't just have two employees at McDonald's because you need one to take orders and one to make food. You have several there because you need to be making food at a certain rate, given the amount of people there are coming in at certain times of the day to keep lines in the drive through and at the register slower. The problem is, once your margins are cut to a certain point or an extra person at the cash, cash register costs more, so say having two registers open instead of one, well, having that extra body there costs double in some, in some situations more than it did before. So now you might think, okay, well, now we're willing to have a longer line because opening that second register costs so much more per hour that we can't justify it economically. So now... The, you, you start to see people either lose hours or there are less people per shift because the profit maximization equation shifts in ways that politicians don't understand. It's these very slight things where it's having an extra body on the sales floor at Sears isn't justified for $15 an hour, but it is for $10 an hour because it is nice to know that you could help more of the customers that are coming in, but you're not going to pay $5 more per hour to do that. And that's kind of the same equation you see with why fast food restaurants have shifted to automation um, if you're going to dine in, right? So they'll have those machines to take your order because it's gotten to the point where it's more cost effective to invest in this piece of technology and make sure it's working than it is to hire that extra body. And if labor, if you could hire somebody for $4 an hour, you're not going to automate it because it only costs $4 an hour. But once it costs $15 an hour, you're going to automate it. So you get these trade-offs where suddenly there are certain um, incentives to automate certain things because now the labor going into it costs more. Or you have certain reasons to... You, you know, you're willing to have lines get longer and more people just decide not to show up because you're only losing one or two customers an hour, but you'd have to pay that person an extra $5 an hour. And then if the margin's slim enough, you're going to cut people in the, these situations. I can imagine the same thing also applying to call centers where you could have certain queues, but if your company could, if, if your company has to raise the wages of 10 people who are on a shift at a time, you'd rather just cut one of those people, save that money, and it's okay to have slightly longer call center queues. So all of these low-income jobs at the margin would actually probably lead to losing hours if the increase is enough. And th this would happen a lot when it's places that are going from, say, 10 or less dollars an hour to $15 an hour. And that's what Biden is calling for when he calls for the $15 national minimum wage. Um, so then a couple other things is, and this is just a criticism of the framing of the idea of a living wage, is they, they often cite $15 an hour because they say this is a living wage 
um, for, for a person. So every person is entitled to some sort of wage that they can afford to live on. Now, th this falls apart really quick when you understand that the United States has completely different costs to have a basic standard of living all across different regions. So if you live in the suburbs in Pennsylvania, your cost of living is going to be a lot different than in San Francisco. Because to afford an apartment, a studio apartment in San Francisco, it's going to cost a multiple of what it is to cost in like a random, you know, town in a, a middle state or in the Midwest. So how can you compare these things in a, na in a national policy to call for a living wage? Um, there, there is an MIT live cost of living calculator out there that will, to some extent, illustrate the point I just made. And I would still argue with some uh, assertions that that, that makes, but it, that, that calculator specifically makes some assertions, like it will give you medians, and there's no reason to assume that a living wage would be at the medium level of living, wouldn't it be on the lower end to get to a basic living wage? Um, but aside from that point, it shows in itself that the living in, say, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, is significantly different than San Francisco. Then it comes down to, well, a lot of times the left will appeal to, say, a single mother with kids having to work a, a low-skilled job. Well, the living wage for a woman who has two kids and is taking care of them on her own is a lot different than an 18-year-old. Um, so how can you really even use this idea of a living wage if there are so many different people in so many different places and completely different circumstances of life all across the country? That is an, it, it's an inexplicable concept because there is no basic li living wage that would fit. Um, it, it's, all, it's all different levels for all these different situations. So this one-size-fits-all policy can't even meet that goal if it wants to. Now, to bring it back to how there's a difference between, you know, college students and high school kids versus, say, a, a low-skilled uh, single parent, you have this situation where if you're a young person, you don't have experience to show off when you want to get in the door. And if the, if the minimum wage is higher, for a company to bring you on, you have to provide value that is greater than that minimum wage, assuming that company has any interest of profiting. So if they would normally hire somebody, you know, to be that additional cashier I was talking about, they knew having an additional cashier would bring in on average, say, $9 an hour of revenue. So if you can hire them for $8.25, your company is making a net profit at the end of the day. And I know all this is done in estimations, but you have to think about all the businesses you don't understand because there are so many different business models with all kinds of different scenarios, with all kinds of different team structures and different ways for them to, you know, be productive with their amount of labor. But so, so you think about the additional cashier that brings in $9 and you can hire a high school kid for $8.25 and that's fine because that high school kid, you know, he lives with his parents and he's happy to work for $8.25. Well, now you make the minimum wage $15 an hour and if the additional cashier is only bringing in $9 an hour, you're never going to hire that additional team member. So now it makes it more competitive for anybody to get a job because they have to be in a situation where they can provide $15 or more of marginal productivity and profit to that company. Well, if you don't have any skills, you're either like a recent high school graduate, high school dropout maybe, a 20-year-old who just hasn't had to get a job and you're a sophomore in college, it's harder to warrant that to a prospective employer. So now what ends up happening is a lot of teenagers won't either join the labor force at all, or if they're trying to, it's going to be a lot tougher for them. And this really applies to even adults that are low-skilled because, um, there are some, unfortunately, very, I guess, unintelligent and low-skilled people. And I'm not saying all people who work at McDonald's aren't intelligent. There are a lot of very smart people who are underemployed. But there are some people 
who at some level have a cap because of their inherent intelligence. And if they can only bring in, say, $9 worth of marginal productivity, then nobody's going to hire them if the region has a $15 minimum wage. And this is going to go for people who would work at McDonald's but really only do janitorial things, because um, I know at my local McDonald's there's a guy who pretty much fits that description, and people like them are on like the lower end of the marginal productivity there. You could get some of the cashiers to pick up a slice of what he does, but he only can be productive in that one aspect. And if that doesn't warrant, say, a $15 an hour wage, he's going to be out of a job, even if it means a bunch of people who are productive get a raise. So I guess what I'm saying is people who are on the left need to acknowledge that there would be some level of job loss because not all jobs warrant that level of productivity, which means any profit-seeking company will not hire them. Unfortunately, this isn't acknowledged. They only talk about the wage gains that would happen. But what ends up happening is it disenfranchises people at the lowest end, which is mostly younger people and mostly uh, people who are unfortunately just low intelligent or low skilled and aren't great at picking up things. Those people are the most disenfranchised by these policies. And it is really bad when young people can't get in the door because then they can't start building their experience. So what, would, what could happen, and I see that a lot now, is a lot of people don't start getting their first jobs till a couple years into college because they just stay at their parents' house and they're just a full-time student. And if you can't point to these things, then you don't have a, a strong resume once you graduate. And this is why we have the zero-dollar exception for interns because some places pretty much know that you can't warrant the productivity of a wage, but they'll at least give you that experience. And that, that weirdly is the loophole around the minimum wage laws right now. So I think, I think that's a lot to consider on the minimum wage front. Now, when we talk about worker protections in general, a large part of Joe Biden's plan is talking about unions and how companies shouldn't be able to bust unions and how unions should be inherently legitimate if there's a 50% um, positive vote on a blind vote. Now, one of the things that unions don't talk about is um, it's almost the inverse problem of the minimum wage problem, right? So in a union, once you get into the union, the lowest skilled people are kept in the company because you need more of a cause to fire them. And the highest skilled people usually are capped because it's collectively bargained and not individually bargained. And if they could realize the you know full level of what they're overperforming, they could make more money. So to some extent, that, that, that's an equalizing force that benefits these lower skilled workers. The problem is, if you have a company that's unionized, the employer is more hesitant to hire people unless that person can show, in general, that they're going to be a better employee. Because you have to you usually provide more benefits, provide um, wages that are above the general market, and it's usually hard to fire people if they end up turning out to be bad hires. So this, in the hiring process, will hurt young people once again, and it will also hurt people who just... Um, cannot necessarily show that they'll justify whatever that above market wages. So in practice, once you're already in the company, it kind of incentivizes bad behavior because you have a much higher floor. It's harder to get fired. And in general, a lot of people are going to make the same amount because of collective bargaining. Um, but in getting in the first place, it disenfranchises people who don't have a ton of experience. And there are unions for all kinds of jobs, even low skill jobs. And yeah, so, and we won't even get into the topic of unions. Uh, if, if you say unions have to be legitimate, you're infringing on that company's decision to bargain with whatever employees they want to bargain with. Because if a, if a company is willing to fire its whole workforce and hire a new one, if they unionize, I think that's their prerogative. Um, if, if they think that's the economically reasonable thing to do. And I don't think it's government's job to come in and force them to recognize a union. 
Uh, that, that should all be about the individual's freedom when it comes to management and then the other workers. But, but, that, but that's aside the point. The point is, even in the best case scenario where they are recognized and Biden gets the policy he wants, this is another step to disenfranchise people who don't have strong resumes um, because you, you have the employer knows that if that person doesn't work out, it's harder to, it's harder to fire them. And this is part of what you see when you look at some European countries' unemployment rates. So in the United States, when we have a booming economy, unemployment's in that 3 to 4% range. But if you look at a country like France, you have much higher unemployment rate, even in good times, because employers have to provide certain benefits that we don't have to provide in the United States. And there are higher worker protections about firing people. So that means since you can't be flexible if things don't work out, you're just much more hesitant to hire people because it's a huge risk. So you're only going to hire people when you absolutely need them, and you have to hire people making the best choice and know they're a great candidate because if you decide they're only performing okay, you probably can't fire them. You can only fire them if they're doing things that are grossly negligent. So in other countries, we've seen this happen, and that leads to high unemployment compared to the United States. Um, so, so right now we have less friction there, and people can get fired if they're not good fits. But in, you know, you know, France is the example. Then you don't have that um, constant ability to turn over if people aren't good fits, and then you have high unemployment rates no matter how well the economy is doing. And this is just a trade-off. And if a person on the left says, "Hey, I understand that, and I'm willing to make that trade-off," then that's fine. But this is central plan policy that's going to have adverse consequences, and these second and third tier consequences do need to be reckoned with. And they aren't reckoned with in this plan. It just asserts that you deserve a $15 minimum wage because that's what a living wage is, or it asserts that unions should be recognized because unions are uh, working for the workers and not for management. And I find all that disheartening because it's just so base-level talking points politics. And, like, I'm not even giving you a huge lecture. This is no economics course, and I'm only using broad examples. I'm not showing you charts. But, but, but this is alone, what I'm saying is more substance on this part of his plan than what you get in the plan. Um, so, so I guess that's a quick primer on worker protections. You, you could also say, depending on how they decide to do some new entitlements like paid family leave, if that burden falls on the employer inherently, then they're going to hire less for the same reason that expanding benefits for a union would lead to less hiring because it makes every additional worker cost more. So if paid family leave is something that um, the employers end up paying in Biden's plan because paid family leave is something he advocates for, then you'll see these same effects. And I would also um, say universal pre-K, depending on how they want to fund it, could also be in that same category. Um, so I hope you guys appreciated this first kind of dive into Joe Biden's economic policy plan, and that was on worker protections. But there are a couple other pieces of his economic policy plan I want to tackle in the coming weeks. Uh, so I hope you guys enjoyed. I'll, I'll follow up with you guys very soon, and most likely we will be back to tackling the news. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcatcher or share the podcast with a friend. You can find out more information about the Obey podcast at anchor.fm slash Obey podcast or on Twitter at the Obey podcast. Until next time. Next time.